0: Welcome to What Were You Thinking, where I, Laura around speak to politicians, opinion formers and business leaders to find out about the experiences, people and places that have inspired them. In this very first episode, I'm joined by Nick Timothy, who was chief of staff to Theresa May in number 10 and in the home office. As you probably know, his time in Westminster came to an abrupt end when Theresa May lost many Conservative seats in the 2017 election. But by then, he already had seven years of government under his belt – This, combined with the fact that Nick clearly likes exploring ideas and policies, makes him an ideal guest. It's a fascinating discussion where we touch on many issues, including the rise of China, Huawei, policing, and he gives us a glimpse of what it's like working in number 10. Nick even shares stories from a meeting with President Trump in the Oval Office, which he hasn't discussed publicly before, and trust me, it really is quite something. In his new book called Remaking One Nation Conservatism in an Age of Crisis, he proposes a new kind of conservatism. If you're interested in political philosophy, make sure to get a copy. What Were You Thinking is in partnership with the Big Tent Ideas Festival, which is the non partisan festival of politics, culture, technology, and fresh thinking. This episode is supported by Finn Partners one of the fastest-growing independent public relations agencies, employing over 800 people in 19 offices over three continents. I like exploring how people's early life has influenced them and, and their thinking. How would you say your years of growing up have influenced your, your thinking and your political views?
1: Uh, well, I'm 40 now, so um, so I'll try my best to remember that far back. Um, it actually is a really long time ago. The country was so different.
0: I thought you were going to go the other way round, actually, <laughs> and be like you're still really young. <laughs> but you know, each to their own. <laughs> yeah, I, don't, I
1: don't think I feel it. Um, uh, well, I mean, I think I think the first thing to say is you. Um, it's it's very difficult not to. Um, uh, it's to it's very difficult to avoid uh sort of looking at things retrospectively and sort of re- and, and claiming that sort of moments in your life must have made you this particular person or uh, or whatever but um when i when i look back at my childhood i actually think i think um you know my parents were not members of political parties uh they they both left school before doing their o levels um and we were uh we were a sort of close knit um, um, strong family um but we were we, you know we didn't have very much uh we were a working class family in a, a suburb in the east of birmingham um and look looking back, i think actually politics was kind of there i mean politics was i mean firstly it was the 1980s and you know there was the cold war and there was the and there was Thatcherism, and that kind of thing going on in the background but um, there were a couple of moments I think in my childhood where where politics was quite sort of stark and and there in my life. So um, so when I was eleven, I uh, I passed the eleven plus and I went to a grammar school, and uh, that was nineteen ninety one. And then in the nineteen ninety two general election, uh, Labour wanted to close down the grammar schools. So I had this kind of uh, early thing where um, uh, where it was. You know, reasonably clear to me that uh, that there was one side of politics that um, didn't really like the opportunity I'd been given. Uh, and th- that's not necessarily a comment on the sort of rights and wrongs of grammar schools policy, but for me, it sort of, it was an early values uh, mm. thing, I think, that the Conservatives wanted me to do better uh, and, yeah. to, and to um, uh, go as far as I could, I suppose. Um,
0: and I guess also, by the sounds of it, you know, politics actually impacting your your day-to-day more so than maybe most children would experience
1: yeah well i think i i think the truth is that the state you know the state whether it's getting something right or wrong uh is probably more present in people's lives when they have less because uh you know um working class families are more dependent on public services uh um than than more prosperous families when they can't afford to opt out of the health system and go private um you know you you Uh, you just get what's there Um, uh, and the the same with schools Um, and I think I think that is definitely uh, that's definitely something that's contributed to uh, the way I view politics as an adult Uh, because I don't think uh, you know I'm very definitely a conservative but I don't think I could have grown up a, um, a, a sort of an ideological liberal or libertarian, um, uh, because I know how how you know the role of government and the um, the role of the state uh, can help families like the one I grew up in. Uh, you mm. know, when, when we were very little, my my brother um, nearly died as a baby, and and you know that his his life was saved by a by a health visitor who spotted what was wrong. Mm. Um, Gosh, uh, yeah. you know mm. the school I went to um uh changed my life um you know these are you know we were reliant on public services uh and we were the kind of family where you know if the economy went wrong um then you know then our own prosperity was uh was in danger uh we didn't have the sort of buffers that a lot a lot of middle class families have um so i think so i so i guess uh you know we weren't it, it wasn't that we were all political activists or anything like that we and, and i I don't remember how much we talked about politics at home, but uh, but but politics was definitely something that affected the the life of the family and 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 families like ours.
0: That's that's really interesting, really interesting. I think. And would you say there's also a person that influenced you know in those days that you came across that had a, that had a real impact on you?
1: Um, well, I think, I mean, my family, I think gave me everything so i mean my my mum and dad are <laughs> heroic figures to me to be honest uh mm. um you know they um uh they just they worked so hard you know i remember you know dad would dad would get home from uh um the company he worked for um in the sort of late afternoon and there'd, there'd be a kind of like tag team and mum would sort of he'd probably leave the engine running on the drive uh and mum would jump into the car and drive <laughs> off to her evening job. Um, and there were times when dad was doing sort of two or three different things and they just worked so hard and they made so many sacrifices uh for my brother and me um that you know i'm i'm in a position where i sort of don't have to make those kinds of sacrifices uh for my uh daughter and stepdaughters but um uh but they had choices in front of them they always put uh their boys first, uh, and went without, and and so yeah, with that being really cheesy, they are slightly heroic figures to me. Um, no,
0: I think that's that's lovely.
1: Um, and then I guess um, you know there are probably moments uh, where uh, I can remember one of my teachers um, sort of sitting me down and and saying, you know, I was a talented boy, but I was uh, basically not putting my weight or not trying hard enough, and I could I could do. Um, uh you know really good things if I actually um, put the effort in and uh, and and I remember that <laughs> bucking up my ideas a little bit um probably when I was about fifteen or sixteen there are sort of moments like those um, yeah. uh, so i did, i think I think rather than rather than a sort of an individual there's my family and I think the sort of the institution uh, of my school was uh, was was very important in my childhood.
0: So you started working for uh, the Conservative Party straight after university, is that right?
1: Yeah. So I um, uh, I read politics at university, and um, and I I had this vague idea that I'd quite like to go to Westminster and work in politics, and didn't really know how it worked. Uh, to be honest, and I uh, and I I wrote out my CV and sent a speculative letter to uh, the guy who was then running the research department, uh, Rick Nye. And said, "Can I have a job and, and for some reason, they gave me one. Uh, it mean, has to be said it was it was two thousand and one when the Conservative party was uh probably at uh, about its lowest ebb, so it, it, there probably wasn't too much competition which might explain why
0: <laughs> you're you're being very very modest so yes, I mean that was clearly the start of a a very long career in in within the Conservative Party and Westminster. Most you know, most people know you from your time for working for Theresa May. Um and, you know, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think you worked for Theresa May as a special advisor in the Home Office for five full years. Yeah, five years. So yeah, a very long time. So I mean that is a, a vast department with responsibilities for so many areas. What were the areas that you were most sort of determined to help solve or get get stuck into when you entered the department if you can remember and also you know did these issues change over time
1: yeah i think um i think my attitude to it probably changed uh, quite a bit over the five years i mean early on um i mean it's, it's a privilege to be asked to go to work in a department like the home office um and it's a great responsibility and i think i think people don't fully understand what it is to be Uh, A special advisor, and and partly I think that's because um, actually uh, the role really varies according to who the special advisor is, who the boss is, what department they're in, um, and so on. And uh, I mean, I mean, uh, the there were times when uh, there were sort of three or four of us on the team, but there were times when it was just uh, Fiona and me, the two of us, um, covering the whole of the Gosh. home office. And, Bloody um, hell, that
0: is, that is a lot. Yeah, and I,
1: I mean, I'm not joking. When I say my hair fell out of the home office, I mean, it did. Um, yeah. um, I, the photographs at my brother's wedding, which was probably about a year or so or two before going into the home office, made me want to cry when I see how much hair I had before. <laughs> um, it's... Um, You know, you're sort of you're you're responsible for, um, you know, absolutely everything. So we're sort of setting the sort of the um, the kind of policy strategy for the department, the political strategy for Theresa. We were, um, you know, you really have to be across absolutely everything that's going on in the department because you know one stray um, uh, operational decision or policy decision uh, can bring everything tumbling down. So. Uh, so you're yeah. sort of simultaneously doing this quite sort of macro stuff but you're also sort of right in the detail of of pretty much everything um, and and obviously the um, the areas that the home office are responsible for you know immigration crime and policing uh, counterterrorism and security as um, you know they're, they're obviously really big meaty and very serious things um, and uh, and I think the interesting thing is you and, and I think this is one of the things um, that David Cameron deserves a lot of credit for in the way that he gave his ministers a lot of time and space in in their departments because we were there for quite a period, um, uh, we we would you know we we weren't just sort of delivering the policies that you know, we'd inherited from opposition. Uh, we really really got to know the department and under the skin of of the issues and and while you know if you take policing as an example while um, the the focus was still very much on you know, making sure that um, despite budget cuts the frontline service was as strong as it could be and that the police were still uh, um, you know a force that was able to to cut crime uh, I think it was that it was it was only with the experience of being in the department for you know a year two years and uh, and so on, that we started to confront some of the injustices in the criminal justice system, um, uh, sort of individual um, cases where there'd been miscarriages of justice of different, of different kinds um, through to systemic problems like um, you know, the way um, uh, we have deaths in custody, um, the way the police often have to deal with people with severe mental health problems because, they're, because they're, there isn't enough uh, help to hand uh, from specialist health providers, um, uh, the way in which um, stop and search is quite often misapplied or conducted illegally, and how that undermines police trust in uh, the black community in particular. Um, so, so the, the 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 very fact of being able to spend uh, you know successive years there, I think, gave us the the knowledge and the confidence to. Uh, to go into policy areas that I think sometimes Home Secretaries can't because their tenures are much more fleeting.
0: Yeah. Well, it is interesting comparing, as you kind of allude to, David Cameron sort of had the tendency to keep Cabinet Ministers in post for quite a long time and, you know, there weren't all these regular reshuffles. There's been so much change in the departments and the Home Office in particular. I mean, that, you know, I, I can't imagine that being a, a great thing. I mean, listening to you speak, it sounds like, you agree that government would benefit from having um, ministers in in post for a longer time?
1: Yeah, I think you want that stability uh, because it you know it does it breeds understanding and, and a confidence to act in certain ways. Uh, it means that there's much more consistent decision making over time. Uh, so you know, in the case of the Home Office, it means that police leaders and so on uh, have a sort of uh, a clear understanding of what of what the Home Secretary expects of them. It also means that the relationship between ministers and uh, and officials is uh, is healthier because you know if you're in a situation where officials think that um, that their ministers are going to disappear in the next six to twelve months, um, then you'll never get anything done. Uh, I mean, Absolutely. without sounding yeah. like uh, you know, I want to write a, a new episode of Yes Minister that the. Um, uh, <laughs> the, the, the there were moments, uh, where, you know, I heard it with my own ears where officials, uh, would sometimes say, well, uh, you know, there's an election coming and, and, um, we don't necessarily think think that (laughs) you'll be around, uh, in several months time. Uh, and this mentality that they'll be around longer than you will, um, uh, which, of course, is normally,
0: <laughs> is normally true.
1: Well, it, it really is often true. Um, and that's actually saying something because uh, because civil servants tend to move on from job to job quite quickly as well.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. So just coming back to policing, which you just referred to earlier, public order is, is high on the news agenda at the moment. You have been quite outspoken about policing. I think ever since your time in the Home Office, what you know, what are your views of the current situation, and what do you think is sort of is needed?
1: Well, um, I think there's a, I think there is a problem with with police leadership um, in England and Wales, um, and uh, and you know, we can maybe talk in a bit more detail about what might be needed there. Um, but I mean, I remember when. I remember when Theresa first became Home Secretary, one of the first things she did in a speech early on was, uh, was to announce the abolition of all national police targets. And she said, she said uh, you know, I'm, I'm the Home Secretary. It's not my job to run the police. You're the Chief constables. It's your job to run the police. Um, uh, I'm not going to second-guess you. i want to give you the freedom to uh, do your jobs better. Um, I'm going to set you a single objective, uh, which is to cut crime. And, uh, and to be perfectly honest, I was expecting this to be uh, uh, welcomed by the chief, by the chief constables, uh, yeah. and mostly they were horrified. And uh, and one chief constable went straight up to a TV camera at the end of the speech and said, oh, "The Home Secretary doesn't understand policing. Um, uh, she doesn't understand. It's much more sophisticated than she's just made out. I only really spend about a third of my time thinking about crime." Um, and I think that that says something yeah. uh, quite worrying oh, about about the culture of uh, of senior police leaders. And to be honest, I'm not sure even after the time we spent in the Home Office. Well, I'm quite uh, I'm quite proud of some of what we did with uh, police reform. I don't think we re- ever really cracked this uh, kind of culture at the top of forces. Um, and and you know, right? Did
0: you ever find out what the other two thirds were focused on? <laughs>
1: Uh, well, um, no, I don't think anybody was ever capable of giving an answer. Um, uh, but I mean, I think I mean I, I I think obviously it is true that not everything um, uh, police officers do is directly related to cutting crime. I mean, some of it you know they are often the emergency service of last resort, and so you know if there is somebody uh, with a mental health problem in distress and an ambulance can't come, then it will be the police who go to um, try to look after them. Uh, yeah, there, are, there are obviously things like that, um, but I mean, let's be honest. The purpose of the police uh, is to is to minimise crime and disorder. Uh, so it's it's unbelievable and uh, and just you know, depressing that that some police leaders might think and speak like that. Um, and now, if you look at um, the acts of disorder we've seen recently, where um, you know the protests for Black Lives Matter uh, turned into um, uh, into disorder, and uh, and you know, th- there were attacks on um, police officers. There were uh, you know sort of desecration of of national monuments and the cenotaph. Um, mm. You know it you know it feels like firstly the police are picking and choosing which uh, uh, which laws to uphold, um, and second it feels like their public order tactics um, are just in the wrong place entirely. Uh, which you know, I was in the Home Office at the time of the 2011 London riots, um, um, and and one of the reasons the riots um, got out of hand was that the police were standing back, and it was their tactic to um, to try to just you know leave the uh, <laughs> leave the criminals uh, in a in a in a in an area that they were trying to minimise, uh, but then let them break the law. Uh, with the hope that they would then go and identify them using video footage later, um, um, and the problem is, as soon as the police tolerate law breaking, especially in an age of uh, social media and rolling twenty-four-hour news channels, um, um, that is just going to breed further criminality and disorder. Um, and I think uh, it's not a surprise to me that uh, that we've seen uh, this violence recently. Um, um, ever since the police basically took a softly, softly approach to uh, the disorder in the first place.
0: So the other thing I want to talk to you about is China, because you have been warning about China for many years now. Tell me a bit more about that.
1: Yeah, so so the Home Office is the sponsoring department for MI Five, um, and so um, and so when you work in the Home Office, you work with um, uh, with MI Five. Um, and um, you know you can't you you can't work in um, in a department with those responsibilities without seeing uh, exactly what China is up to. Um, uh, you know, early on when we arrived in the department, uh, there was the publication by the Intelligence and Security Committee, which I think at that point was chaired by Malcolm Rifkind um into the way in which uh, Huawei had been allowed into uh telecommunications infrastructure um uh by BT uh, and this was i think the the relevant decisions i think here were in about 2007 8 um and uh, and it sounded like um uh, we didn't you know Britain didn't have structures and processes in place for Government to even take a view on whether Huawei should be allowed to do that, um, which is absolutely crazy. And we ended up, the government ended up creating a, a sort of special monitoring facility um, to try to make sure that Huawei wasn't uh, abusing its position in our systems. And the only reason they were in our systems was because we'd allowed it, and there haven't really been. An obvious need to do so, um, but that's only you know that, that was that was the first thing that was to, started to alert me to China when I was in in the Home Office in, back in sort of twenty ten eleven time. Um, uh, but it was it was it, it was clear as soon as you started looking at it that uh, you know, they were they were investing massively in telecommunications uh, for a particular reason. Um, they they commit industrial espionage on an absolutely enormous scale everywhere around the world. Uh, Businesses are reluctant to talk about it because they don't want to um, alarm investors too much, but it happens pretty much routinely. They set debt traps around the world uh, for countries by building infrastructure, uh, and then when countries find it difficult to, um, uh, to, to, to meet the payments, they... Uh, they then insist on things like military access to the port they've built. Um, they're, they're investing you know an enormous scale in our critical national infrastructure. Uh, and it's all about winning geopolitical leverage. So they want, to, they want to be able to say to us when it comes to you know, votes in the United Nations and things like that, that, um, that you, know, you don't want to jeopardize uh, the hundreds of billions that are going to be flowing into Britain from China. Uh, over the next year or two, do you? Um, And we've been very, very naive about it.
0: It must have been, I mean, I don't want to put words into your mouth, but it must have been quite frustrating whilst being in the Home Office and hearing about, you know, what you just described, you know what's going on, and yet observing sort of a government line that's being taken by number 10 in the Treasury at the time in regards to China.
1: Yeah, and it it really was driven by the Treasury. I mean, George Osborne, um, I think, you know, I. I don't think anybody wins any prizes for saying in the 21st century, um, you know, Asia will rise and China in particular will become much more powerful and uh, uh, and prosperous. Um, uh, the question is, uh, you know, what is the right, you know, understanding that that's the, a fact, uh, then what is the right policy for Britain? And um, my sense was that George um, uh, thought that this was a little bit like the moment... Uh, after yeah you know, in the years after the second world war in the 1950s when harold Macmillan thought uh well you know we shouldn't we shouldn't fight britain's relative decline because uh because it's underway and it's irreversible and that britain should play uh you know Athens to america's rome uh and make ourselves america's principal ally in the world um I think he thought that we could make a similar kind of strategic shift with China and present ourselves as China's best friend in the West. Uh, but the problem with that is um, is you know in the 1950s Britain was the declining power, so we, we could we could take that decision ourselves. Um, but the, you know the, the power that faces relative decline today is America who remain our principal ally. Um, so you can't go all in with China without undermining your security uh, relationship with America, and, and 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 you know obviously China doesn't share Western values, and its strategy, uh, I'm afraid, is one of domination, uh, and so and so they won't they won't respect Britain for um, for kowtowing before them, uh, um, they will they will disrespect us further. Um, and, and and just seek to gain further leverage and further power over us.
0: And just quickly on the, their new nuclear programme, what are your views on, on that?
1: Well, it, it's certainly the case that they've been building up their, uh, their weapons systems uh, for some time, including, I think, I think, to be honest, of more concern than nuclear weapons is their, um, their long-range uh, uh, missiles capabilities of different kinds. Um, uh, this is something that, uh, the, the Russians as well as, uh, the Chinese have invested in, uh, very heavily. Um, and, and I'm not sure, I'm not sure Western, um, um, missiles and, um, protection systems against missile attacks, uh, and also, um, uh, investment strategies, you know, like the way in which we've. Um put so much into the new aircraft carriers really reflect this new danger um from countries like um china and russia uh, but i mean but you know more than more than just their capabilities i mean I, to be honest time i'm i'm pretty concerned by their intent and their strategy. i mean i think in recent years we've i think some policymakers in the west have uh taken comfort from the fact that uh, you know, China's, China's a very long-term strategic country, isn't it? You know, it's all very slowly, slowly, uh, which means that, um, you know, on one, on one hand, that's quite scary because <laughs> they're, they're probably making better decisions than, uh, than short-termist uh, democracies. Um, uh, but on the other hand, it's a reassurance for some uh, because it means the threat that they represent, um, you know, doesn't seem that imminent. Um, but actually, what we've seen since uh, since the pandemic um, uh, break out, um, they they've actually become much more aggressive uh, very quickly. So, uh, you know, they've um, they've been flying military jets into Taiwanese airspace. They've they've actually locked on to Taiwanese um, jets. Uh, they haven't shot them down, but they've locked on, which is literally the sort of last thing you do before firing. Um, they've sunk a, um, a Vietnamese shipping vessel. They've been extending their military uh, facilities in the South China Sea. Um, uh, they've, they've obviously uh, effectively torn up the treaty guaranteeing um, one country, two systems in Hong Kong. Uh, yeah. They're engaged in uh, an aggressive border dispute against India uh, in which Indian soldiers have been killed. Um, and they've been going around the world misrepresenting uh, what's been happening uh, with the virus and trying to trying to claim uh, that the virus might even have started in Italy and in other cases in the United yeah. States. Um, you know this is not this is not the behavior of uh, a regime I think that can be trusted um but it's also not the behavior of a regime that uh, that is especially worried about confrontation with the West. It feels like Xi Jinping. Is actually quite happy uh, for that uh, for that confrontation to be to be pretty explicit now.
0: Yeah, aired publicly. I mean, one of the things that I just wondered listening to you talk about all of this, and I, you know, I don't want to put you in a uh, compromising position, but clearly from your time in the Home Office, Huawei was an issue already. So Theresa May when she was in number 10 she would have had all that that knowledge hi- history and and you know all of that yet didn't make the decision i guess in in whilst in number 10 that i imagine y- you would have liked or would have expected i mean yeah that that just strikes me as quite odd
1: yeah i think so i mean when when we got into number 10 um uh, the the contracts that had been negotiated for uh, the new nuclear reactor at Hinkley Point um, was put before us. Um, now, this contract um, probably stands for bad energy policy and bad financing of a of a big project like that, uh, and is pretty expensive um, for the for the um, for the future bill payer. Um, uh, but the the plant um, is being built by uh, EDF, the French company and is being financed by uh, the Chinese. And, um, and alongside uh, um, the, the details of who will run it and who will finance it is this commitment called progressive entry, which means that um, after Hinkley, um, at, at Sizewell in Suffolk and Bradwell in Essex, uh, there will be another two new nuclear reactors. And, uh, and with each one, the Chinese role in 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 running uh, the um, the reactors um, will grow, and uh, I mean, I was I, I was pretty appalled by the whole deal um, on every level: a sort of security level, uh, um, uh, um, an energy policy level, and a financing level. Um, Theresa um, uh, paused. Uh, the deal and, and said she wasn't going to sign it immediately uh, and in the end being was persuaded uh, to go ahead with it, subject to some tweaks which were pretty superficial um, um, uh, on the grounds that uh, because it was shortly after the Brexit referendum it was an important signal to the world that um, Britain wasn't against international investment and uh, because this deal was so important to the future of EDF, uh, given the Brexit negotiations would inv- would require um, uh, some good relations with the French, uh, that she ought to go ahead, uh, and so she did. I mean, I, you know, I think that was a, I think that was a bad decision.
0: And what about Huawei whilst in Number Ten?
1: Well, so when when I was in Number Ten between twenty sixteen and seventeen, um, uh, there was uh, there was no decision to be made about Huawei. Um, um, she, you know, appears. Um, uh,
0: yeah, I mean, it was obviously after your time. Yeah, yeah. She,
1: appears, she she appears to have taken a, um, you know, the decision, which was then, uh, um, uh, sort of confirmed by uh, by Boris as Prime Minister to allow Huawei the role in um, in developing five um, uh, G infrastructure. Uh, and I have to say, I mean, I just, <laughs> I couldn't really believe it was the same person, um, who I'd worked for all those years ago because, you know, throughout her time, um, in the home office and even in the first year in number 10, um, she was a Sino skeptic. Mm. Um, and, and then she committed to, uh, allowing Huawei right at the heart of our, uh, latest infrastructure, um. Uh, and sure, I, di- I you know I didn't see uh, the advice that uh, she received um, from her um, security officials, um, um, but I think it's I think it's very very unwise. Um, and I think uh, well, the government seems to be in uh, in the middle of a uh, a shift in policy, shall we call it, mm. um, <laughs> um, uh, which will become more sceptical and 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 I assume and hope. Uh, will lead to Huawei's role being absolutely minimal and eventually removed from the system.
0: Yeah. So after the Home Office, you obviously ran a leadership campaign and that ended up with you um, working in Number 10 as Joint Chief of Staff to the Prime Minister. What is that job like, Nick? I mean, that's, I think, what everyone wants to know.
1: (laughs) (laughs) well, uh, well, I mean I think the one thing that everyone will be able to guess but probably can't really understand the reality of is that it is you know as all consuming as you would imagine. Uh, mm. you know you um you wake up um and you're thinking about work and you're fielding calls and sending emails. you get into work at an early hour um uh, you uh you get home at midnight and fall asleep and repeat. Um. Uh. And <laughs> it's it's very tiring. <laughs> um. I think. Um. um I don't know what to say about it?
0: I mean, I think. What were your favorite? What's your, what were your favorite elements about it, or memories, or you know? Well, I mean, the
1: the, the favorite thing is quite obviously the sort of sense of privilege you feel to be a, to be in a position to um, to influence uh, the future direction of uh, of the government's policies and to and to try to. Um, uh, m- you know, move the country forward in a way that, uh, that that you would like to see and you support, um, and that isn't that's a a massive privilege. I mean, the you know the unfortunate thing for me was that it only lasted for a year, and uh, and while I think we, um, I think through communication, um, uh, and and through sort of, uh, um, you know, announced. Um, sort of changes in policy direction showed that uh the conservative party was capable of being something different to what many um you know perceived it as um, we didn't then get to deliver on on very much of that because the election in 2017 went wrong uh i don't i don't feel like um there were mistakes made uh in the year in downing street before the election but you know the biggest mistakes were in the election itself.
0: Mm. I think, in in many ways, a lot of what the current administration is doing, sort of a shift in you know the direction um, they're taking, in sort of the the narrative, I suspect, in particular, in some regards, feels a bit like a continuation of your time in Number Ten.
1: Yeah, I think so. I mean, I'm 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 very supportive of what um, Boris has tried to do as as Prime Minister, and and you know, while my my honest sense of frustration. Uh, um, is born of the fact that we didn't really get very much done. The one, you know, the one thing I try to reassure myself about um, is um, is that, um, you know, in articulating that kind of different approach, where you know it was the, the the Conservative Party was trying to put itself uh, at the service of working class families, it was more open minded about the, you know, the good that government can do and the uh, to quote the soundbite I once wrote for Teresa. Um, um, in in doing those things, um, uh, I I hope we um, we influenced um, Boris and the agenda that he has today. And I'm uh, I'm you know I hope that the pandemic is obviously a public health crisis, but it's also an economic shock. Uh, I hope that I hope that uh, the extent of the economic uh, problem we face now won't knock him off that uh, that plan that he set for himself. In fact, I think you know if you want to try to grow your way out of a recession, then actually um, you know doubling down on your commitment to invest in infrastructure to to try to level up and rebalance the economy on a kind of geographical basis um, uh, becomes even more important.
0: Mm. I read recently one of your columns in The Telegraph was that you you sort of argued that in order for the Prime Minister to get through this crisis, he should trust his cabinet more and have higher quality ministers. And, you know, there's been more calls like this recently to also decentralise the government. How likely do you think this is going to change?
1: Well, I mean, it feels to me like, um, you know, the pre-crisis Downing Street-Whitehall relationship um, um uh will you know cannot continue into the sort of post crisis phase um you know already uh the treasury um you know has, t- has taken a very central role in the crisis you know quite rightly and understandably um and uh and and certainly as as they need to take decisions about uh you know future fiscal policy and uh different policies to deliver growth then then it will be interesting to watch the uh the number 10 number 11 relationship because you know it's obviously never exactly harmonious even when um uh even when the the principals get on with one another um uh so i think i think the departments uh the departments are quite likely to become a bit more powerful vis-a-vis the centre post crisis anyway um, but I don't think Number Ten should uh, fear that too much. I mean, I think I think we were seen as having too tight a grip from the centre, and we probably did overdo it, and we probably did take a bit too much of the Home Office mentality into Number Ten with us. Um, uh, but, but you know, when you're when you're the Prime Minister, and when uh, when you're the sort of senior staff in Number Ten, you know, I think you know, I, I actually, I put this in. This is language i used in the book but um you know it's your job to uh, um to write the score and conduct the orchestra it's not your job to play every single instrument um yeah. and uh, and i think i think it's a that is a problem that that different downing streets um it's a mistake that different downing streets make and a problem that they often create for themselves um uh, and so I think you know if they if they really do want to fire on all cylinders they've got to they've got to appoint secretaries of state that they they you know, really trust uh, and then they've got to give them uh, the space to start delivering.
0: I was just about to say yeah it feels like trust is the key the key word here and it's and a mutual mutual trust. Um, yeah, know that's that's really interesting. I mean, just on a slightly more light-hearted note, can you share some sort of crazy moment in number ten? Some some anecdote, <laughs> just to give us a bit of a, a flavour. Oh, um, <laughs> um,
1: well, I mean, I mean to be honest, uh, I mean, obviously meeting Donald Trump was uh, was fairly extraordinary. Um, <laughs> I mean, uh, some of the I don't think I've ever talked about this um, uh, on the record, anyway. Um, I mean, you know, we, um, Theresa met him in the Oval Office, and, uh, I think it was, uh, I think, I think there were three or four, um, officials and advisors on each side, and I was, I was one of them. So, you know, it's a fairly extraordinary thing going in for a meeting with mm. the president in the Oval Office, uh, and, um, you know, not something my nan and granddad would ever have expected anybody in the family to do, I suppose. Um, um, so it's interesting in itself, but, uh, <laughs> But you know, it's not like meeting Teddy Roosevelt, uh, it's Donald Trump. <laughs> and uh, and I remember um I remember some of the conversation in that meeting being pretty strange where um uh, where Trump was talking about sort of, you know, different like geopolitical issues about sort of threats in the Pacific region and things like that. And I remember him looking up and saying, "I don't know, do you want to add anything?" And I thought he was going to ask, say to Mike Flynn, his uh, his national security adviser, and it turned out he was looking up at Steve Bannon. And he said, "Do you want to add anything, Steve?" And then Steve Bannon was g- giving this account of, uh, of like you know, um, uh, the politics of the Pacific in a way that you sort of felt like a sort of you know quite intelligent person who'd read a couple of books would talk about it, rather than a sort of deep expert. And they were sort of talking about you know the desirability of. Uh, you know whether whether Japan should be allowed its own military again, but you know because it, you know it might make sense vis-a-vis China, but uh, you know the Japanese, uh, you know they're a warrior people, aren't they? Um, uh, it's a very strange, um, yeah. very strange sort of kind of conversation. And then we had a lunch um, uh, with him and and more advisors on each side, and and it came out um, during the conversation that I think I think. Um, somebody just mentioned in passing that uh, that Vladimir Putin had asked for a call with him. And right in front of us, uh, he absolutely shouted down Mike Flynn, like really shouted. Um, this was at a formal dinner with sort of, you know, butlers and um, uh, and sort of, you know, fancy crockery and whatnot. And he's like properly shouting at him down the table um, uh, because, you know, if, if Putin wants a conversation with me, you just put him through. Um, uh, it was all, the, the whole thing was a very strange experience and, and not especially <laughs> and real insight. Yeah, you know, not especially reassuring about uh, about the state of his mind or the stability of, of decision making in the White House.
0: Yeah, yeah, that is that's extraordinary. That's extraordinary. It's like actually being a fly on the wall, <laughs> except having a lovely dinner at the same time. One of the things I like asking people in this in this program is whether there's been a place that sort of had a special meaning uh, to them throughout their life.
1: <laughs> well, um, uh, I think rather than choose a uh, uh, an exact place, I think I would probably say um, pretty much any cricket ground. Um, uh, I'm a I'm a massive cricket obsessive. Uh, it is a tragedy of the summer that uh, that cricket can't be played right now. Um, uh but it's you know there is nothing there's nothing lovelier than um you know sitting in the sunshine in summer um you know having a drink or twelve um uh you know watching a test match or a county game or something um uh you know it's relaxing it takes you away from things but you know i you know, sort a great conversation with with friends i've i've actually done a reasonable amount of business at cricket grounds over the years because quite a lot of people in politics and the media are also uh cricket obsessives mm. in fact actually when i um uh um in in 2017 I, I i went to the test match uh with uh with chris evans the editor of the telegraph and uh, and that was where he offered me my column um brilliant so, yeah so lords was
0: was that after twelve drinks? I don't <laughs> I <didn't, laughs> I'm I do I that
1: probably after about <laughs> <that> four. Came <laughs> <laughs> <a> later.
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's that's brilliant. And um, what about an object? Is yeah, a book or something or.
1: Well, I think that books mean a great deal to me. I'm not one of these people who um, can read a Kindle. Uh, I think the Kindle is just the most sort of sacrilegious item I can imagine. Um, (laughs) uh, It's always a pain when you're planning a holiday and you're sort of carrying God knows how many heavy books with you in your luggage. But um, uh, I mean, I would would definitely say my book collection at large, uh, which is probably uh, a bit of a cop-out. But I think in particular, especially right now, where I feel like, uh, you know, the West is collectively losing its mind, I. I, I think I think pretty much anything written by Edmund Burke you know, and you know, reflections on the revolution in France being the most famous is uh you know well lots of people right now are saying that they need to educate themselves uh, I would suggest if they want to educate themselves I would start with something like that uh, uh, because I really do think we need to um we need to avoid this kind of excessive ideology and we really do need to accept that um you know, pluralism in a society is what is what is what leads to uh, peace and stability, and we really need to rediscover that uh, that it's okay to agree to disagree sometimes.
0: Mm. The thing we uh, finish off with, I'd like to finish off with, is a round of quick fire questions. Uh-oh. What do you think this administration is doing better, and what are you most critical of?
1: Uh, well, overall, I mean. The, the, it's just it's it's clarity and decisiveness and uh, and and I think while the communications have uh, have been less good during the pandemic, actually Boris is a world class communicator uh, and Theresa just never was. Um, so I think those are the those are the good things. Um, on the sort of more critical side, I think I think you know after this crisis they're going to have to give a bit more space to secretaries of state uh, and put a bit more. Um, trust in them and and obviously we're going to need to see um, some flesh but on the bones uh, when it comes to some of the commitments like industrial strategy and the leveling up agenda
0: yeah and what would you say your biggest bugbear is of politics today
1: god uh there are so many um i but what, <laughs> one of the things that really um upsets me is um is the kind of curse of the narrative which is, mm. it's a political thing, but it's also a media thing, uh, where um, nobody ever really judges an individual event on its own merits. It's always, how does it fit uh, the the narrative? Um, and And I think that causes us to get quite a lot of things wrong. But it also, I think, puts quite a lot of power into the media's hands and and I think it's kind of inappropriate I remember having this conversation with a journalist um years ago now um and I made the I made the mistake of referring uh to him as somebody who reports news <laughs> uh and he was he was slightly outraged that I'd said this and I said was, I, was, <laughs> was, I was I'm terribly sorry I thought that's what journalism was and he said no no no, no. he said he said if you think about it he said you know i cover westminster and whitehall and if you think about it there are thousands and thousands of decisions being made every week and uh and you know i can't possibly make sense of all of those um uh, decisions on on individual terms it's my job to understand everything that's going on and to present it in a single story uh, a narrative so that mm. so that my readers uh, can understand and I and I that really sort of uh, sent a bit of a chill up my spine because I I I, th- I thought that that was a real sort of delusion of grandeur, but it also meant that uh, you know I I think he was uh, I think he was taking on too much for himself. It's too much power for the media to sort of to to interpret events. Uh, in that kind of way and it's I think it's much more important that we uh that we report things and understand things uh, yes in their context but also for what they are rather than trying to shoehorn everything into an overarching narrative all the time
0: yeah I've actually done you know I've thought about this quite a bit during this podcast I mean because it just made me realize how little we we tend to hear from politicians in sort of long form and so take Joe rogan's podcast for example you know he has politicians on the show who talk mm. to him anywhere between 1 and 3 hours and it's through that medium that you really get to understand what politicians are advocating for and what motivates them etc and instead we tend to just consume all this through through this filter of the media that you just kind of described you know either sound bites or you know, a a five-minute section in Newsnight or whatever it may be. And even just in, you know, general election or leadership debates where candidates are expected to convey their vision for the country in five minutes. You know, it's... If they're lucky. Five minutes. If they're they're lucky, depending on (laughs) how many candidates there are. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. And, um, yeah, it's it's a shame, I think. Um, And I guess that's why podcasts are increasingly popular i suppose well it
1: definitely shows that there is a real desire for something sort of serious and and considered um Mm. uh, and i think i mean thank god for that because um uh, i mean i feel like i feel like brexit partly did it the pandemic uh has has meant it's continued i feel like the country is probably more politically engaged uh um now than than maybe at any point in my lifetime uh, mm. So I don't think I don't think it's the case that the public is lacking in curiosity or sophistication or anything like that at all.
0: I agree. Final question. I've totally forgotten it was supposed to be quick fire question, but hey ho. Um... <laughs>
1: <laughs> it's, it's it's fine. This is this is the format that we're just <laughs> <having>. <laughs> Um
0: What piece of advice would you give to um, politicians or a politician? <sighs>
1: um i think I think that probably the most important thing is being true to yourself and and remembering why it, why it is that you wanted to be a politician and a minister in the first place. Uh, I remember having this conversation with quite a few of the of the ministers uh, I worked with where it's you know you spend years as a as an activist and maybe a councillor and then a candidate in an unwinnable seat and then a candidate in a winnable seat and then maybe you're an MP for several years in opposition uh, and then you might you know finally you're, then your party's in power and then you might be made a minister and it's taking you all this time to get there and then I think and I think then lots of ministers just seem to be somehow content to just sign their name at the bottom of things prepared for them by the civil service. Um, and uh and you know anybody can do that uh so yep. so i think you know remember why it was you wanted to do this and, and make a and try to make a difference while you can because uh you know quite often it's uh it can be over in a blink of an eye
0: <laughs> nick thank you so much that was that was truly fascinating thank you for having me on there was so much in that conversation I especially find his insights into China really interesting, but was also blown away by the anecdotes from his trip to the White House. It's not every day that you hear such candid accounts of high-level meetings. If you enjoyed this episode and are looking for more content, make sure to become a friend of The Big Tent. And please subscribe and leave a review wherever you listen to your podcast, which will really help. And as it is a brand new podcast, I would be very grateful if you could spread the word as well. If you have any questions you would like me to put to future guests or have any requests for guests, please let me know via Twitter. I'm at Laura Round. Thank you for listening and make sure to tune in for the next one.